0: Morning, everyone. It's good to see you. See, I didn't get much applause as I got up here. <laughs> this is... This is... <laughs> Listen, you're just taking the mic now. Right, this is week six of eight in our Philippians series. Next week, leadership. The last week, stewardship. Today, citizenship. I'm going to read for you from Philippians chapter three. Not that I have already obtained all this, Paul says, or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what's behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is is in heaven, and we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. I would say to you that generally, the wealthier Christians become, generally... The wealthier they become, the longer they live, the more comfortable they are, the more they become attached to temporary things and become, like Paul mentions in verse 19, set on earthly things. I think that's true as the generations go by, as living standards go up. And it's not always been that way. You see, Past generations of Christians were generally more future oriented than they are today. More focused on eternal rest. More focused on Jesus' return, on the ultimate goal of salvation. Christians used to be more like my Satnav. My Satnav is purely destination focused, it's all it cares about. And if I take a wrong turn, it doesn't throw it out. It just reroutes me. It's very, very, utterly, completely focused on the destination. Christians used to be more like that. That's also been true of oppressed Christians the world over. The harder this life has been, the less they've had in this world, the more... Christian focus was on life beyond death. It's true of the songs of black slaves, tragically, in years gone by. They, for example, were filled with future hope because, sadly, tragically, evilly, there was so little present hope. It's also true of Christians who are persecuted today, Andrew White uh, was for many years known as the vicar of Baghdad. He was the vicar of the one Anglican church in Baghdad until 2014. And I went to hear him speak once in Torbay, where I used to live, in 2007. And while he was speaking, he said so many profound things from his experiences. But he said this, I recorded it. His church services there used to last six to seven hours. And for one hour, an hour in the service, he sat and simply listened to people telling him how life had been for them that week. He did that every week. And that particular week before he'd come to visit the UK, he said, he said this 27 family members and friends of people in his church had been kidnapped in that one week. That's the climate in which they were living. And he said this, I quote, I can't tell my church they won't be killed this week. I tell them this, when we see Jesus, we will be like him. And they clap and they cheer and they are so happy in that situation. The harder life is through the centuries for Christians, the more eternity-focused they've been. And Paul, here in this passage, is clearly, thoroughly future-oriented. He has his sights set beyond the grave to eternal life with Christ. However, let's just be clear, that doesn't mean that Paul is sitting around Just saying, don't worry about this life, it doesn't really matter. Just sit tight and hold on and wait. He's nothing like that kind of attitude. He was aggressively proactive about the mission of God. For as many days as he had on this earth, he knew that God had got a hold of him for a purpose in this life too. That at least is part of what he's saying in verse 12. Not that I've already obtained all this, or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. He's very conscious that in this life I'm pressing forward, forgetting what's happened, going for the purposes of God. But he wants, above that, beyond that, he wants his readers to imitate his pursuit of what he calls the prize, So verse 14, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. I wonder what that prize was. Paul, you set yourself to the goal and the prize. What is your goal? What is that prize? Well, it's more than simply the temporary things in this life. It's more than the things God has got for you in this life. It's more than that. It's more than the task, the vital task, that God had given Paul in this life. His prize is final rest with Jesus. Paul knows what he's ultimately been called to. God got hold of Paul on the road to Damascus. Many of you will know the story. And he gave Paul a commission. But Paul knows the ultimate destiny of the great Christian story. He knows where he's going. He knows what Jesus came to win him for. And it's not just a better this life, because many Christians don't in many senses have a better this life. God has got a hold of you that you might live with him in perfection forever. And Paul knows that's the destiny. That's the prize for which God has called him heavenwards in Christ Jesus. You and I, in our modern Western world, are prone to forget that that is the goal of salvation. Listen to these shocking future-oriented words in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul, in the context of resurrection, he's talking about this. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. (laughs) You might be familiar with that phrase. It's deeply shocking. If... He weren't so future-oriented. That is a deeply shocking sentence. So the prize, the goal, the treasure is nothing less than Christ himself, both in this life and more fully in the next. If you're a Christian today, the prize is Christ. He is the treasure. He is the point of it all. He is what he's called you to himself for, to know him, to have more of him. And Paul's been saying that. He's been saying that a couple of times, at least already in this letter. He's just said in the previous verses in chapter 3, he said this, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. He says, I want to know Christ. And then, back in chapter 1, he said this, one of the most challenging statements, I think, in the New Testament for each one of us to think, where am I with this? He said, for to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. What can he possibly be meaning? As long as I have breath on this planet Earth, life is all about Christ. Knowing him, having him, making him known, it's all Christ. But he says, and to die is gain. How can it, how can it be gain? What does he mean? No more suffering? Well, partly, but he must be meaning this. If Christ is everything here and now, death is gain because it's more fully Christ. I shall know him as he is. I will be like him. I will see him. I will be in his presence, unhindered by sin, unhindered by distraction, perfectly and fully in his presence. Whether he lives, whether he dies, what matters to Paul? Christ. Having him, knowing him, becoming more like him. A friend of mine um, recounted a brief story of having gone to Beirut and when. Uh, This friend of mine was there. He had been introduced to a Syrian refugee. Lots of Syrian refugees in Beirut. And this lady, who had become a Christian since she got to Beirut from Syria, said this. Let me tell you, she's got hold of something about Christ being the treasure. She said this, in Syria, we had work and house, but we did not know Jesus. Now we have nothing. But we have Jesus. We have suffered very little. She knew what the prize was. She knew that whatever she had lost was worth losing for gaining Christ. Now in this letter, Paul has twice now mentioned about their citizenship, their true citizenship. Now I need you to hold on to Christ is everything. Living is Christ, dying is gaining more of Christ. Because twice now he's talked about their true citizenship in chapter 1, verse 27, and here in this passage we read just now. And to those readers in Philippi, it was a really interesting and alive kind of concept. The idea that your citizenship was truly, your real home, was somewhere other than where you actually resided. Really resounded with these Philippian Christians for this reason. That Philippi, where they lived, had the special status of being a Roman colony. It was an outpost of Rome. It was a mini-Rome. It had all the status and the privileges and the responsibilities of being a Roman citizen, bearing the name of Rome, representing the emperor in their life in Philippi. So the, so the Christians in Philippi, Paul's saying this, you may reside in Philippi, you know that, but you're really citizens of Rome. Well, it may be that you reside physically on earth here, but your true citizenship, your true home, your true place of belonging is somewhere else other than Philippi. Do you know where it is? It's in heaven. You are citizens of heaven. That's where you truly belong. And let me say to anybody who's a Christian here today, if you are residing in Bournemouth or Poole or Christchurch or... Up in, uh, I think up in Alton, there's some people here from Alton and various places. Wherever you're residing, if you're a Christian, you may have your direct locality there. You may have a property there. But let me remind you don't get too attached because your true citizenship is in heaven. But what does that phrase, citizenship in heaven, mean? It's a bit nebulous. It's a bit almost, dare I say, is it a bit airy-fairy? What does it mean, citizenship in heaven? Well, heaven was a word that was used in a couple of different ways. It was used to distinguish the earth and the heavens, anything above the earth, out there, for example. That was one way it was used. So Genesis 1, chapter 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What they meant was everything out there and the earth. The heavens declare the glory of God, Psalm 19 says. What's he saying? Well, everything out there, all the stars, all the planets, the moon and so on, they're declaring, they're speaking something about the greatness of God. But heaven is used more specifically and used here, not to mean quite that sense. It means this, it's the realm where God most fully dwells. Heaven is the realm where God most fully dwells. And if you want to say, where is that in the universe? It's not exactly located in a particular locality. We know God fills everything, but there's a sense that heaven is where God most fully dwells. And here's the extraordinary thing that Paul is saying to these Philippian Christians here. He's saying, your destiny is... Your being followers of Jesus is to dwell where God truly is. Our names are written in heaven. In other words, God's got it secure for us. That's where we reside. That's where our identity is. That's where our locality is. He's the name we bear. He's the one we live for. Our identity is wrapped up with God, and we rest, as it were, where he is, safe and secure. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. Now you might be a Christian today and you might think, I don't have a lot of physical blessings, which is probably not the case if you live in this country, but you may feel like that compared to your neighbor, your work colleague, your family members. You might think, well I haven't got much. Let me tell you this, you have been blessed with every nothing missing. Every spiritual blessing, not in this life necessarily, but in heavenly places. As far as God is concerned, as far as your status with God is concerned, you are blessed as much as you could ever be blessed. Ephesians 2 verse 6, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? I'm seated in heavenly realms. Well, I feel like I'm sat on a chair in Bournemouth at the moment. Yes, you are sat in a chair in Bournemouth, but there's a greater reality to where you're physically sitting right now, and that is this that God has raised you up as Christ was raised from the dead. You've been raised from spiritual death, and just as He is seated at the right hand of God, you're seated with Him. Unbelievably extraordinary. That's where you actually reside. That's your true location. That's your true home being with Him. And you have that now. That is our current place. So if you ever wonder who you are, never succumb to the devilish thought that you're just a nobody, you're a citizen of heaven. Never accept that you're just a poor excuse for a Christian. You've been seated in heavenly places with Christ. And never lower yourself, which many of us are prone to do. Never lower yourself to believing you're just a victim of circumstances. You have been chosen and adopted to reign with Christ as a child of God under his kingly rule. Catherine Butcher, who works in the um, commission office upstairs, has been, I think, four times to Uganda on a trip to uh, serve with some very needy people there. Every time she comes back, I ask her about her trip. And uh, every, every time she goes, the funniest thing she talks about is, they always comment about my weight, she says. And she says to them, in England, you just don't do that. But they say say to her, like last time she went, not this time, last time she went, she said, Sister Catherine, you are so fat. (laughs) Some of you who are from another culture will realize that's a huge compliment. Because to be my shape in Africa means you must be on the edge of starvation. (laughs) Actually, I've just got a high metabolism. And it all burns off. But in... Come on, brother. But in, in Africa, the bigger you are. My word, sister, you are doing well. Your husband looks after you very well. The Lord is blessing you with weight upon weight. Anyway, this time when she came back, she said, she said that some people... So, the people often there often name their children after what they think when they realize they're pregnant or have given birth. So, one child genuinely has recently been given the name Surprise Henry. (laughs) Imagine explaining that to your friends for the rest of your life. Oh, why did you get that name? Well, my parents were just shocked when they found out she was pregnant. Surprise, Henry. Lots of people are called praise and gift, understandably. But another child, born very recently, has been named Miracle. Miracle is not a normal Ugandan name. Miracle was born to and named by a 13-year-old, Rebecca, who became pregnant through being raped. Rebecca and Miracle live in a four-meter by five-meter single room. They live in that single room with five other people. You have to scramble up a pile of rubble to get into the door to get into their room. And they have one suitcase that holds the belongings of all seven people. Now, that's a hugely complex issue, becoming pregnant after being raped. But I know this from hearing the story, that Rebecca's Christian faith has affected deeply how she sees herself, how she sees her baby, and how she sees what's happened, and has not allowed her to just be a victim of circumstances. She knows she is a citizen of heaven, loved by the king. And so she is empowered and enabled to continue. You are a citizen of heaven. You cannot have a greater status. You cannot get more dignity. You cannot be in a more lofty place than being a child of God who is a citizen of heaven. Now having stated that Jesus Christ is the prize, that being with him is the goal, and that we're citizens of heaven, Paul makes it clear at the end of this section we've been looking at that those whose citizenship is in heaven await two things eagerly in particular. That's most of us. we eagerly awaiting these two things. Verse 20, we are eagerly awaiting the Saviour. In verse 21, we are eagerly awaiting transformation. So firstly, verse 20, we eagerly await the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me do a quick recap to catch you up. What happens when you die if Jesus hasn't returned? It's a good question, isn't it? What happens? Let's be very quick here. The souls of Christians upon death are immediately and consciously with Jesus, enjoying both God's presence and freedom from all suffering. Isn't that great news? No one's meant to look forward to dying, but we're not meant to be afraid of death. Let's just be clear too, that for those of you who have Christians who have died, and who you loved, they are not unconscious. They're not asleep, waiting Awakening. And nor are they looking down on you. That's a common misconception. Actually a very freaky idea. Nor are they with you all the time. I know it can feel a little bit like that after someone's died. That's not the reality. But being with Jesus beyond death is not the end game of the great Christian story. If it was... Dying and going to be with him would be enough. That would be God's goal for the plan of salvation. But it isn't because verse 20, we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. One day the king returns. In those of us who work in the church office often hear Kerry exclaiming, well, we often hear Kerry. We often hear Kerry exclaiming. Whether she's frustrated or amazed, her exclamation is most usually, Oh, my days! Like, of all the days, that sort of thing. You often hear Gary, Oh, my days, whether she's happy or sad, it's what comes out. Well, the day of Jesus' return is going to be the day of days. That's going to be the ultimate Oh, my days. And putting all the New Testament evidence together, we're told that his return will be sudden. It'll be at a time that no one knows. It'll be such that all will see and hear his arrival. That the dead outside Christ will be judged and that all believers will give an account of how they've lived in this life, yet with salvation secured. All the world will see him. All the world will know. All the world will see the final vindication of Jesus Christ demonstrated to be the risen Lord of all as he appears in a way such that all can see. And all the world will see that his people were right to trust him. You may be mocked just now. You may have unbelieving family, friends, neighbors, work colleagues, and so on who scorn your faith. There will be a day, it won't be a day of gloating, but there will be a day when they will recognize you were right to trust your Savior. Folks, there's a day coming when He's returning. You may be here, you may not be here, don't worry about it. If he comes while you're alive, all is well. If he comes after you've died, all is well. Don't worry, don't look at the signs too closely, don't get too hung up about it. He's going to come and it will be the day of days when he returns. But, even that's not the end of the great Christian story. Because verse 21, we eagerly await the Savior, but we eagerly await transformation as well. Let me continue the recap for you. When Jesus returns, believers will be clothed with resurrection bodies and will inhabit a sinless world where heaven really is heaven on earth because the full presence of God will be with us as we reign on a new or recreated earth. So while after death, your soul will enjoy a spiritual existence with Jesus in as much perfection as is possible there, that's not the end of the story. The end of the story is that there he returns, gives us resurrection bodies, and he and we reign on a newly created earth with an imperishable resurrection body. You annoyed with your body just now? It's going to be all right. Do you like your body just now? Don't have to comment on that. Do you like your body just now? Don't get too impressed. Because one day, it's going to be a whole lot better. You have a resurrection body that will never fail, never be sick, never lead you into sin. It's going to be amazing. So we eagerly await two transformations, he says, that are for us beyond life after death. Firstly, the transformation of everything. Verse 21a, he says this, the power that enables him to bring everything under his control. Let me ask you a question. At the moment, if you know Hebrews chapter 2, you'll know the answer. At the moment, do we see everything subject to Christ? That wasn't a trick question. No, we don't. We know he is Lord. We don't see everything subject to Christ. Even we are not always fully subject to Christ. There's a day coming when he returns, when he will transform everything, when everything that exists on this newly created earth where heaven fully dwells, everything will be subject to him. Nothing will rebel against him. The devil will have been cast out. Sin has been cast out. Pain has been cast out. Death's been cast out. Everything dark's been cast out. Everything's subject to Christ in that day. That's going to be a day. That's going to be a transformation. And secondly, the transformation of my body. Verse 21b, he says, who will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Your lowly body is actually pretty remarkable, your body. It does an amazing number of things, remarkably. But there's something about the resurrection body of Jesus that he didn't even have in his life that could walk through walls, that could appear here, that could appear there. There are going to be limitations that you currently have in your physical life that you will not have anymore in your resurrection life because this lowly body will be transformed to be like his glorious body that is imperishable and is just remarkable. The Christian hope is not simply that we don't die the Christian hope, the end of the story is of spiritual and physical perfection known as resurrection life. It's a wonderful story. It's a wonderful gospel. If you're not a Christian this morning, what's stopping you? Why would you not want to live forever in perfection? Come into the family today. Now I suspect that our expectations of resurrection life are relatively limited. I doubt that you woke up this morning leaping out of bed thinking, never mind, I've got a headache. Never mind, I feel dozy. I'm going somewhere. My faith is a future-oriented one. I need not worry. Everything's going to be transformed, even my body. Anybody wake up like that this morning? No, you're not. we're not very conscious of that. Our expectations of resurrection life are very low. And I wonder if, in part, this will help explain why. One of the best-known songs from the musical Matilda is When I Grow Up. And that song, When I Grow Up, which is very well known, includes these lines. And when I grow up, I will eat sweets every day. Matilda's a young girl, by the way. When I grow up, I will eat sweets every day on the way to work. And I will go to bed late every night and I will wake up when the sun comes up, and I will watch cartoons until my eyes go square, and I won't care because I'll be all grown up. It's a fascinating song, because the child can only see the advantages of growing up as being being allowed to do more of their best childish things. Eating sweets, staying up late, watching TV all day. But growing up brings far greater pleasures than just more childish things. And so it will be for us. You see, if we tend to think about heavenly life, resurrection, we think, well, what's the best things we know? Well, there's mountains. Do you know there's going to be amazing mountains there? Lakes, I love lakes. I love a beach. Maybe it's going to be like Bournemouth Beach, but even better. The trouble is, all we've got is our childish things to extend. Does that make sense? Like Matilda had. Let me tell you, like Matilda found, growing up there are far greater pleasures than just watching cartoons until your eyes go square. Let me tell you, it's going to be much better than you can even possibly imagine, because at the minute, all you can imagine is more of our childish imaginations. The absence of sin and evil And the presence of God and pure goodness is more than you can ask or imagine at present. All in all, for citizens of heaven, the return of Jesus and the transformation he will bring will be more than you have ever expected. Does anybody here love gardening? There's a few crazy people. There's a few... Do any of you watch Love Your Garden on ITV? Yes? A few Tuesday evenings ago, I, I was... I don't know why I was watching it. I have no idea. I must have been bored out of my mind. But I watched this program, Love Your Garden. Here's, here's what the program write-up says about it. Alan Titchmarsh, that great person, surprises... Alan Tischmarsh surprises deserving people across Britain with transformations to their outdoor living spaces. A bit like DIY SOS but outside. Alan and his team of experts nurture oh, never mind. The week I saw it, the week I saw it, the show came from South Wales, where Alan and his team were tackling what they said was the most difficult plot they'd ever faced. The garden belonging to Chris and Karen garlic. Chris, Chris is a husband of three, three young children. He had been well until two years prior to this program, when he lost his hands, both hands and both feet, to sepsis after contracting meningitis. Dozens of people work on the garden over a number of days and spend an inordinate amount of money. Towards the end of the program... Alan Titchmarsh, as always happens on these programs, he brings the couple out and says, keep your eyes closed. So it happens on this program. Alan brings Chris and his wife Karen into the finished garden with their eyes shut. And then Alan says, open your eyes. And the shock, literally, on Chris and Karen's faces is really quite moving. Karen, I recorded it, can only say this, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, oh wow. Chris is completely stunned, says nothing, and actually looks like he's struggling to breathe. He is so shocked at what he's seeing. And then Karen begins to notice some of the individual features in this recreated garden. And she points some of them out, She says, oh, look at the colors over there. And look at that, and look, Chris, all this area for you that he could take his wheelchair around. There's so many things to look at. And finally, all Chris can say very calmly, but in genuine shock is, I don't believe it. That's incredible. Now, Chris and Karen, like we as Christians, knew that what they would see would be far better than what had been. They must have been wondering in the week while the gardeners were at work, they must have been wondering, I wonder what they'll do. I wonder what trees we'll have. I wonder where they'll put the lawn. I wonder if there'll be a path for you, Chris, so you can take your wheelchair. They had been imagining, no doubt about it, trying to anticipate the reality of the recreation. But the reality of the recreation, of the transformation was more than they could ever have imagined. All the pain and the disappointment and Chris's illness and all the stress seemed in that moment to be swallowed up in joy at what was in front of them. I think you and I, if you're a Christian, are going to experience something like that. But even more. Your best imaginings, your best childish imaginings are going to be blown away by resurrection life. Because citizens of heaven have this hope in them. He will transform everything. And he will transform your lowly body to be like his glorious body. It's great being a citizen of heaven. If you're not yet a citizen of heaven you need to come and speak to me afterwards please or a friend you've got here and say how can that be my story here's what I'd like us to do I'd like us all to make an individual response and then we're gonna sing I wonder if some of us have just lost sight of the prize and you're so worried about this and getting on with that and trying to accumulate the other and have become so attached to this life that you've just forgotten. I'm a citizen of heaven. I'm living for another world. And then there might be others for whom life really is so hard that you've lost hope. And I want you today to know that in the middle of your genuine trouble and hardship, can come this living hope again. He will transform everything. All will be well one day. So I'd like you to close your eyes, and whichever of those it is that is most relevant for you, or it could be something else from what we've said this morning, when you're ready, I'd like you to just stand up. Nothing more than that, and talk to God. Just helps you to do something. Just stand where you are, tell him where you're at, and talk to him. Say, Lord, I'm so sorry, I, t- I have just forgotten. That this is the story. This is where it's gone. Or maybe for you, Lord, this is so hard. Thank you, there is hope in this you will transform everything. So let me just give you a minute. And when you're stood, just talk to him. For others, it will just be, Lord, I want to thank you, there is a future hope. Well, just stand up and start talking to him. Keep talking to him, keep thanking him, ask him for help. citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body Jesus, thank you for so great a salvation thank you for the days to come Thank you for the rejoicing there will be. Thank you that all pain gets swallowed up by victory. You are amazing. Let's sing today.